All right, class, listen up. This isn't your regular public school education. Here, we discuss the money topics you should have been taught in school, but weren't. Join a community of people who are taking their lives into their own hands. Learn about financial independence so that you can design the life of your dreams. You're listening to The Fi School. Let's build a life worth running to. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Russell, what's going on in your world, man? Yeah, so uh, I'm actually down in Florida right now. I'm from Utah, uh, but I'm down here for summer sales. Uh, it's been an experience. I know, Jared, you did summer sales for like a summer, half a summer, something like that, right? Yeah, uh, it was about a half a summer, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know how it is. It's a grind. Uh, it's like a full-time gig, so we work from like... 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. basically and with like a one-hour lunch break in the middle um, and yeah it's pretty crazy it's it's been way harder than I ever th- thought or imagined it would be <laughs> dude yeah so what 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 were you thinking it was gonna be and how has it actually been in reality yeah so I mean I knew it was gonna be hard but I didn't realize how mentally taxing it would be um, because you're you're knocking on one to two hundred people's doors every day, talking to somewhere between like 50, 70 people, and ninety five percent of them are telling you no. <laughs> and you're just you're grinding for eight to ten hours a day just trying to find that one, two, three, four, five people every day that are willing to listen to you and who need your product. So it's it's just hu- it's a huge mental grind because it's all about just staying positive and being able to portray yourself in a way that makes people want to buy what you're selling. But when you've been going for eight hours and it's burning hot <laughs> and you're soaked in sweat and you've got like 10 no's in a row, it's like, it's a lot harder to, to, to like give your pitch as like at full energy at that point. So that's been the most difficult part is I think is just staying high energy because you have to stay high energy even when you're exhausted. So yeah. that's been the most difficult part. I don't know, but it's been also really, really, really good for me. Um, and I enjoy, I enjoy the aspect of getting paid what you're worth and getting paid for the work that you put in. And so that's, it, it motivates you to like, it pushes you you know, and that's been, that's been really fun. So I'm enjoying the experience. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning like a really valuable skill set of like selling. Um, and yeah, and I'm growing a lot. Like it's pushing me to my limit. So it's been really fun. What about you? What's up with you? Dude? Well, um, before a little bit about me, dude, I'm, I'm just so happy for you that you're, you're kind of going, going through this sort of a, a crucible, you could say, I know a, a lot of people have a lot of negative feelings about door-to-door reps, and it's—I mean, it's—it would be a lie to say that all door-to-door reps and all sales companies are created equally, and they're all phenomenal. And the truth is, they aren't all created equally. And um, you know, in in a lot of cases, you you get the opportunity to really help somebody save a bunch of money or 
to quit having you know like ants and cockroaches coming in your house i know growing up we should have gotten pest control because we had so many bugs in our house all the time um so i wish someone would have knocked on our door about pest control but um yeah so i'm, I'm just excited you get to learn a lot yeah when i did um well we can talk about it later i don't want to steal your thunder but um it was definitely a huge learning experience for me um, so I'm, I'm really excited because we'll get to record a bunch of episodes, you know, on the podcast here the, over the next few months. And um, we'll get to, like, listen to you and your transformation and the things that you're learning in real time, which I think is just so cool. Yeah, um, just just one or two things that I think have I have learned um, that I thought were kind of interesting. One, you like I've learned a lot into, like, the mind of, like, buying and how, like, salespeople and companies like influence people's thoughts and how much how much how intentional like advertisements and salespeople and like like businesses are about that kind of stuff it's been it's been really interesting um and looking at how like i myself have kind of been like swindled sometimes you know like bought into that like that sales like that that whole that someone's really like sold me on something that i didn't really need you know and the other thing that i've learned is how like how much sales infiltrates every part of our life and how how applicable and useful that skill set is in just like communication with other people on a normal day-to-day basis on like really anything you're doing any business you're trying to start any little side hustle you're trying to do anything where you're trying to convince someone that you have a good idea you know it's it's such a useful skill set so like I said, we'll dive into that another time, but it's been it's been really fun so far, and I've only been here for a week and a half. So, yeah, um, I know that man. That I have so many thoughts, and we'll we'll definitely have to cover this in a, in another episode because uh, I know Alan Donningen over at the Rebel Entrepreneur he talks a lot about sales and the importance of sales and what what it means to sell because it's not just you know giving some junk item or service to somebody and taking all their money and then like leaving town and going to the next town kind of a thing. Like it's, it's this whole transaction of, of, of value that's really going on. So uh, we'll definitely have to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, What's going on in my world. So for the first time ever, we have, uh, we've, what's it called? So (laughs) we have started, uh, we've made a, a tax loss harvesting. Okay. I'm just gonna, can you just edit that out? I'd appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so for the first time ever, we um, did some tax loss tax loss harvesting. Um, and so usually, um, usually what happens is when you have capital gains. Um, so if you're, you're invested in the stock market and your money goes up a whole bunch, it's worth now a lot more than it was before. Then when you go to sell those stocks, if you choose to sell them, then you have to pay taxes on that gain, right? Well, if the stock market goes down, like the market is down currently by a whole bunch, then if you sell your stocks, then you can take what's called a, a tax loss harvest, or you can you can harvest your tax losses, which means that let's say you invested ten thousand dollars and your money is now worth five thousand dollars, then you can sell your stocks, you know, pull that five thousand dollars back out, and what the government will do is they will take that $5,000 that you lost in the market and they will net that out against your income for that year. So if you're expecting to earn, you know, an extra $5,000 in your job and you don't want to get pushed into the next tax bracket, let's say, then if you sell these stocks and you harvest that $5,000 loss, then that would offset the $5,000 gain that you had at your job. Um, And so to the government, you've earned the same amount of income, even though technically you earned $5,000 more. And is it, is there a cap like $3,000 a year? Is that, 
right? Or is it? I, I don't know. I've, I think I've heard something about that, but I haven't done a whole lot um, of digging into it. And, and the reason that is, is because what we did is we turned around and we bought, um, we bought new shares of a similar fund. So there's this thing, it's called the wash rule or wash sale rule. And that is that if you, let's say you have your money over at Vanguard and you have your money in a total stock market index fund at Vanguard, and you decide to sell that at a loss so that you can harvest these tax losses, if you turn around and purchase a similar fund within 30 days, or even that exact same fund, then the government will, will call it a wash. And they, it, to them, it's as if you never sold it in the first place. So if you sold at Vanguard and you turned around and went and bought over at Schwab or Fidelity's total stock market index fund, because those funds are so similar, it would count as the wash rule and it would get netted out. But um, things like the small cap, mid cap, and large cap ETFs are not the same as an S&P. They're not considered the same as like the S&P 500 um, ETF. So that's what we did. I had done some kind of some experimenting with different allocations, different percentages in each of our different accounts, right? So in our IRA, or, or sorry, traditional IRA, our Roth IRA, our brokerage account, I had, you know, we had like... 10% international in this fund and 40% small cap and 20% mid cap and 20% large cap. And then in this fund, we were 90% VTI or total stock market index and then 10% into international or then 10. And so we, I was just experimenting with a lot of things a while back and I decided we would just simplify things. And when I had read that the S&P 500 codes is a different kind of product than um, these other index funds, I decided, you know, we're just we're just going to sell all of these different, you know, random allocations of different things, and we're just going to put them all into the S and P five hundred. Um, so, you know, it's going to offset a little bit of our of our income that we will be earning because uh, I did get a couple pay raises this year, but it's it's not a whole lot more than anything. It was just it was a great time to simplify things. So. Thought we might as you well save yourselves so. a, save yourselves a couple hundred bucks in taxes which is never a bad thing, yeah so. <laughs> at most so <laughs> yeah definitely not a bad thing uh, but speaking of the stock market that's actually what we're going to talk about today so a while back this guy named jl collins who if you don't know who he is or anything about him you are going to learn to love this man a whole bunch because we absolutely love him. I know he has changed my life in so many different ways. And one of the things that he did a while back was he he has a daughter who's you know probably now in her late 20s. But when she was uh, graduating high school and getting older, she, he, I mean, he, J.L. Collins, he just kept trying to like hammer on her head, you need to save your money, you need to invest your money, you need to do this, you need to do that to set yourself up for success financially. And she was like, Dad, I... I get it. I just don't want to have to deal with it. You know, like I understand that this is important, but I don't have to worry about it. And a lot of people are that way. They don't want to have to worry about their money. There are a few people who get like so much energy and like want to geek out learning about the tax code. And, you know, we, t we talked about offline uh, doing some episodes on, on different tax codes and um, setting yourselves up for success with the, with the tax code and here in the United States. But uh, most people don't get that excited about the tax code. So, um, so what this gives us is this opportunity, right, to, uh, or this gave JL Collins the opportunity to um, decide to just write out kind of a step-by-step -step guidebook or plan for his daughter saying, look, okay, if you don't care about this, then here's just do this and do this and do this. And here's like some small explanations as to why, and you're going to be set for life. And 
the thing is he's received a lot of blowback saying like oh this is you know great advice but you know for beginners but anyone else who's you know more sophisticated can you know can figure it out and his response i've listened to several of his interviews and i've read his book uh, the simple path to wealth which we'll talk a little bit more about later but basically he said look if this if there was a better way a more likely and more probable way of getting outsized returns i would have done it like he he is one of those like nerdiest of nerds when it comes to um, learning about stocks and investing he actually he made a bunch of money picking stocks and then um, it was just so volatile and he did not trust that he would be able to do it forever like uh, peter Thiel or, or warren buffett or anything like that so he he switched into index funds and we'll talk about that here in a little bit too but um basically he wrote before he wrote his book he wrote a series of letters to his daughter right and he started just putting them up on his blog sharing it with the world and people loved them and so it turned in it was just going to be a couple articles well it turned into 36 articles all about um, st the stock market and stocks in general and different retirement accounts and things and so uh, if you go to his website it's jlcollinsnh.com the nh is just for new hampshire um, or you can just look up jl collins stock series and you'll find the links to all of his articles and we can toss them here in the show notes too um, but what we thought would be a really fun thing, we've, we've been meaning to do some deep dives into certain topics, right? So want to do a deep dive into the stock market, what it is, how it works, so we can all understand the stock market a lot better. Things like a deep dive into some like real estate investing, deep dives into, into budgeting and um, how to make budgeting work so much better for your life and, and lots of things. And so we've decided that we're going to kind of split up his his 36 articles plus, you know, some other articles that have been written. And we are just going to kind of talk about some of the highlights and all of them. We totally recommend that everyone go and read these because it is it is phenomenal. And he explains things in such just like a funny but intelligent way. He's got lots of graphs and numbers and pictures and, you know, lots of good things to keep you entertained, but also to make this a very real subject for everybody. So um, that's what we are going to talk about. Yeah. And one thing that I really liked about it, because I was just reading through these first four articles we're going to talk about today, and they're all relatively short. So if if you're one who's like, I don't want to like take my whole life and spend it reading these 32 massive articles. Well, really don't worry about it because he tries to keep one pretty succinct and short and focused. So um, we're gonna go over the first four if that tells you anything about how long they are. If we could do three or four of them in an episode, um, you can probably read through a couple of them. So I guess the first one, I know the premise is he was reading an article from like a money magazine and someone essentially said that buying and holding was no longer a viable option or a viable like uh, way to, to earn money in the stock market. And that kind of ticked him off. And, and so he ends up starting this stock series. Um, why, why is that like, why, why did that upset him so much? And like, what are some of his pushbacks to that specifically, Jerry? Yeah, so what he was saying was, uh, he was saying that buy and hold investing doesn't work anymore because of so many uh, technological changes that he was saying that stocks can be traded and sold, you know, bought and sold so quickly over, you know, the internet. Now we have these online exchanges so much faster than back when they were like paper stocks and you actually had to purchase things. He was saying that it's, you know, it doesn't work anymore. And he, he basically cited some numbers just saying that, you know, during a few years, the stock market only returned 4%. And he said that, you know, it's really just the too many people when too, too many buy and hold investors, he says, um, they get too nervous and they sell when the market drops. 
And so JL Collins kind of got upset. He was like, well, duh, like if you're a buy and hold investor and you don't buy and hold and you just buy and then sell at the bottom, well, of course you're gonna lose money. And Dr. Lowe, he says that the best thing that you could possibly do in, you know, in lieu of being a buy and hold investor of kind of the total stock market index, what he says, um, and he, he says here, quote, we're in awkward, we're in an awkward period of our industry where we haven't developed good alternatives. So your best bet is to hold a variety of mutual funds that have relatively low fees and try to manage the volatility within a reasonable range. You should be, you should not sorry, you should be diversified, not just with stocks and bonds, but across the entire spectrum of investment opportunities, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, domestically and internationally. And so, so <laughs> it was just kind hold. of a funny, exactly, buy and hold everything is what his response is. Buy and hold doesn't work. And we're kind of in an awkward place where we don't have any better strategy. So buy and hold everything. And and his idea so he actually hold more than just stocks and bonds going to like currency exchanges and foreign. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, domestic and international stocks too. And um, he actually went on to uh, JL Collins updated his his article, and, and this guy went on to run a, a hedge fund for a long time, and that fund uh, eventually uh, closed, and we don't know what this guy's doing anymore. Um, he was he was featured back in the profits from the profs, um, you know, from the professors back in the Forbes 2015 investment guide, and he ran he ran this hedge fund which. Uh, didn't lose as much money as the S&P 500 during these few years, but he had a, they had a Brett, like an, an insane expense ratio on this fund of 1.3% and a 5.75% sales loading fee. What, what's and the so, sales what, loading fee? So loading fee is the fee that you pay on your money just to have them put this into the fund. So, oh, so you pay five per- transact in or out, they charge 5%. Um, I'm not sure if it happens every time that you go, like if you buy and sell out of the fund, but if you're the hedge fund, if you're this Dr. Low guy and I want to give you, you know, $100,000, you're going to take 5.75% of that as a commission fee saying, okay, I'll do this for you, right? That's like the entrance fee just to play the game. And then an expense ratio, that's the fee that gets added on every year for you having your money in that fund so i mean this is just absurd fees right so definitely it makes sense why jail collins got so upset with this no one should ever be in any of these funds basically ever um it's a horrible thing to do so <laughs> we're just going to talk a little bit about that um but yeah so what what other questions i know you were, you were looking through this were there other things that kind of caught your eye in this first article yeah so um Basically, J.L. Collins is saying that buy and hold is still a viable strategy. Um, what exactly is the buy and hold strategy? Um, and like, what are the principles it's based on? Like, for example, the next one that talks about the market always goes up is I know a principal key of the buy and hold strategy and, and what makes that strategy successful and what, what, what does that strategy consist of? Yeah, so... There, Brian Feraldi wrote a wonderful book on this called The Market Always Goes Up, and he kind of breaks down um, what the stock market is as well. And we're, we're going to, we've got some numbers here that are kind of exciting to talk about. But there is a, there's a quote that J.L. Collins has in one of these articles, and I just want to read it real quick. And he says that companies, uh, you know, here in the United States, companies around the world, though, really, companies are filled with people working relentlessly to expand and serve their customer base. They are competing in an unforgiving environment that rewards those who can make it happen and discards those who can't. 
It is this intense dynamic that makes stocks and the companies they represent the most powerful and successful investment class in history. Because in essence, what so what what he's saying here is that you are making every time you purchase a stock, anytime you, you are in the stock market, you are making a bet on the people in those companies. You are making a bet that they are going to do what they can to make things better for their company and for the people that they serve, for the, the clients that they have, right? So let's say that you you buy a, a share of Microsoft, for example. You're betting on Microsoft doing better in the future, in the long run, than they're doing today right now or that they've done in the past, right? If you buy a Tesla stock, you're probably buying the stock because you think, well, electric cars are cool. I think Tesla has a competitive advantage over its competitors in the electric vehicle industry. And I think that 5, 10, 15, 30 years down the road, Tesla is going to be, you know, through the moon or through the roof over the moon, like leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. And they're just going to grow enormously and going to be this this huge um, benefactor of awesome uh, products to the world, right? Because electric vehicles do a lot of good for this world, right? You know, software, products, services, Amazon, Netflix, you know, all of these things. Yes, there's there's lots of, you know, discussion over the, the issues with social media and with um, freedom of speech and, and lots of these things. But kind of in aggregate, if you look at Facebook, Facebook has changed the world. I mean, dramatically changed the world has changed the world, the way that we do communication, the way that we can stay connected with people around the world. And because Facebook existed and started to do new things, other companies started to play off of that innovation and companies start to compete and to outdo each other and to become better. And so when you buy anything in the stock market, you're just hoping you're making a bet that the people working in those companies are doing what they can to make that company better, to make their products better, more competitive and like making these products better for you as a consumer. Right. So. That's kind of the way the stock market works because when you buy a stock, what you're doing is you're buying literally stock in a company. You are buying a small, small piece of ownership in that company. And so by giving, by, by buying, let's say you buy a Tesla stock, you now own one, like one billionth of Tesla, right? Not, you know, not a whole lot, but you own a tiny amount of Tesla. And so as Tesla gets better and improves, increases their profits, makes better products, sells their products and can sell their products to more people and bring more value to the lives of the people um, that they serve. As that happens, your the one little share is going to be worth more because the company is doing so much better. Right. And so, and yeah, sorry, you're going to say something? One other question. So from my, what I understand as well is that you're also betting be, – in the sense, if you're investing buy and hold in the sense of like a total stock market index fund or something like that, you're also essentially betting that the world is going to continue to produce people who will add value and grow and push the envelope and make the world a better place. Because by investing in a total stock market index fund, you're continually buying up these new upcoming um, like startup publicly traded companies as they continue to grow and grow and grow and you're starting to kind of let go of some of these older companies that are starting to like die off or lose their lose their pertinence you know and so it's as jl collins coined the term of self-cleansing um and so it's this idea of essentially when you're doing this buy and hold strategy you're betting that these amazingly brilliant people today are going to continue to add value and that more and more people as time goes on the world will continue to create people who can grow 
and build off of that and continue to add value and make the world a better place. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, so going back to this topic of self-cleansing, so um, just real quick, kind of going to, going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of break down uh, kind of what an index is. So the way that index funds work is that they are a collection of companies. Um, well, sorry. So an index, the way it works is an index is a list of companies, certain companies. So the S&P 500, the standard and Poor's 500 is an index. And what that means is that they list the top 500 companies it's not exactly the top 500 because there are some other requirements, but basically the top 500 companies in the United States, right? And there's a list of them. And that list changes all the time because it's just the top 500, right? So if you are if you are Apple and then tomorrow Apple blows up and there's no more Apple, it's going to fall off the list, right? And that's kind of how it works. So you're following this list of 500. So then companies like Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab, um, what they do is they make a fund where they track that index and they do, they say, you know, okay, if this is the number one company, then for every dollar that someone buys of our index, we're going to put, you know, X number of cents into company one and into company two and into three, four, all the way down to 500. Um, and so the S&P 500 is kind of a it's, a, it's a really great indicator of the total market in general, because it's, it's taking up all of these, you know, these 500 companies, the Vanguard total stock market index fund, which is um, also a phenomenal fund. We refer to it as the VTSAX, VTSAX. That is the ticker symbol. Um, I know Schwab has a similar one, total stock market index fund, etc. There's, you know, lots of them, but a total stock market index fund is just a little bit bigger than the S&P 500. So Vanguard's total stock market index fund, it takes up, I mean, it includes the top 3,700, 3,600, 3,700-ish companies. I don't remember the exact number, but that again, that is the top 36, 3,700 companies in the United States, okay? Um, you've probably got friends that work at a bunch of these different companies. <laughs> and so if you think about it, when when you're buying a fund, you're saying like, okay, I want to buy just a tiny piece of all of these different companies that basically make up the entire United States market. Um, and of course, there are other funds that track, you know, the international market or markets in specific countries and whatnot. But, you know, based here in the United States, we're, we're going to focus on, on the United States stock market for the most part. So um, the way the way that these index funds work, the way that JL Collins explains that they're self-cleansing is that because it's not like a basket of five select companies and it will always be those companies. No, it's just a list of the best. This is just a list of the top 500, the top 3,700. And if you stink and you lose all of your money and you provide, you know, crap services or whatever, or if you're just not as competitive as the up and comings and you're not, you know, you're not on your edge, you're not, you know, you, you've lost your, your edge, your competitive advantage, and you're just, you can't keep up anymore, then you're going to slowly fall out of that index. So the way it works is when you put in your dollars into one of these index, right, your pennies get split up into all of these different companies, but they get split up unevenly. So these funds are actually cap weighted, which means that you put more pennies into companies one, two, three, four, five, and fewer pennies into 499 and 500 or 3,700. 
So as a company starts to fall down in the ranks, you know, Blockbuster. Blockbuster used to be, you know, up in the top rankings, right? I don't know if you remember ever going to a Blockbuster, but, you know, I, I miss my Blockbuster. I miss going and picking out DVDs or, or VHSs for, you know, family time and whatnot. But as Netflix started to come around and as other companies started to try new you know, new technologies, new ways of providing this service, Blockbuster couldn't keep up. And so Blockbuster, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but you know, let's just, let's just say Blockbuster was number 100. A couple years later, now it's 200. Now it's 300. Now it's 3,700. Now it's bankrupt, right? Long before Blockbuster goes bankrupt though, they're going to fall out of the index. So what's going to happen is you're going to be losing money on Blockbuster as it's slowly falling out of the index, right? Because you're just buying the whole index. So let's say you're buying, let's say Blockbuster is towards the top. You put, you know, 10 of your pennies out of your dollar into Blockbuster. And now Blockbuster is only worth six of those pennies. Well, you know, you lost your four pennies. And now Blockbuster is only worth two of those pennies. You lost more pennies. And now Blockbuster is out of the index. And you lost all of that money. What happens is inside of index funds, a company can go to zero which means it can lose 100% of its value to you know out of your money. But here's the cool thing about indexes, right? As a company falls out, a new company has to come in. And the vast majority of these companies are either going to fall out or just kind of be average. But there are going to be a few of these companies that do twice as well as the market as a whole. And a couple of these companies that are going to do five times as well as the market. And there's going to be a couple that go 100x, 1,000x, right? The thing is, you can lose up to 100% of your money in one of these companies. But there is no cap to how much that company can grow and become, right? So we saw Tesla over the last few years jump up thousands of percent right not just like five times ten times no like like hundred times i don't know the exact number so don't quote me on that but tesla has gone up thousands of percent in the last few years right that more than makes up for all of the companies that fell out of the index like blows them out of the water so what you have is you actually have like a oh you could say it's a bias or a slant or a tilt towards going up because you'll have some companies fall out, but the maximum they can lose is 100%. And you'll have a few companies that you can that just run free and that just you know get 100, 200%, 500%, 100,000%, right? These companies can just go through the roof. And that's why we see that the stock market always goes up. It doesn't necessarily go up every day and it doesn't necessarily go up every month or even every one year. But over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, the stock market always, always, always goes up. So what what does a like what does it come out to be? Like how much does it go up every year? Uh, so if you look at the historical data, it looks like the market goes over any 20 year time period, the market goes up anywhere between like eight and eighteen percent. Um, kind of depending on which which years you're looking at. So if you go all the way back to, I believe the study was done in from 1920 to today, every 20 year period had a, um, or the average 20 year period growth was 11.9% mm-hmm. compounded annually. And if you look at the last, let's see, for, and yeah, from 19, let's see, so for, yeah, 1995 to, Sorry, I'm using the wrong numbers. Every 40-year period had an 11.9% annual growth. So from 
uh, what is this, 1975? What's 40 years plus that? 2015, right? So from 1975 to the, which is the creation of the index fund by Jack Bogle over at Vanguard, right? He created the first index fund. In 2015, any money that was put in there had grown 11.9% compounded annually. How much is that over the course of 40 years? Um, uh, let's see. If the, according to the rule of 72, that means you divide, you know, let's say 12%. 72 by 12, what's that? Six? Yeah. Close to six, right? So, which means every six years, your money's going to double. So, over 40, that's, you know, your money doubles almost seven times over that 40 year period. So, however many percentage that is, that's how that's much your money grew over that 40 period. That's really cool. So, basically, if you put your money in and you wait long enough, you're almost guaranteed a return. Yeah. And, it's not just like almost guaranteed a return, depending on what your time horizon is, it could be a guaranteed return. So Brian Feraldi just included this. I was just listening to an interview with him. Um, he, he was explaining kind of the statistics for the S&P 500. So the S&P 500, if, since its creation, which was back in 1876, I think, 1870s, but that's when the S&P 500 was created. Every year, he did the, he did, he ran the numbers every year since then. And if you bought money, if you bought the S&P 500 and only held it for a month, you made money 61% of the time. Okay, that's like, those are good odds, a little better than flipping a coin, but not phenomenal. If you bought the S&P 500 and held it for one year, your money grew 69% of the time. Now, if you extend that over to a five-year period, your money grew 81% of the time. Over 10 years, it grew 89% of the time. 15 years, 95% of the time, and over every single 20-year period, you made more money in the S&P 500. And that's so, like including for inflation adjustments. So, so 100% of the time. You're telling me if I bought at the bottom of like whatever recession, like the 2001 recession, the 2008 recession, the, the whatever other major recessions there were between then and now, which there are plenty, like even if you bought at the bottom of those or bought at the, uh, some peak right before it bottomed out, you'd still end up with, like if you bought like the day before it dropped and what was the, the JL Collins, he talks about the one day where it dropped like 25% in a single day. If you bought like yeah. the day before that and dropped 25% on the first day, you'd still end up with more money. After 20 years, yeah. And that's, you know, that's assuming that you don't continue to buy more money. And here's one of the things that JL Collins talks a lot about. And he says that the when the stock market crashes or when the stock market goes down, those stock prices are on sale. And so if the market drops 50%, all stocks are now worth 50% of what they were. Has anything changed in the company? Like, no. Nothing about companies has changed because stock prices are just like largely arbitrary and basically the way that stock prices work is that people are making bets on what they think the current environment is going to do to a company's like future stock share price like it's really the price of a stock is completely arbitrary which is why companies can take they can split their shares and you know one company can have four million shares and one company can have one billion shares and it doesn't matter how many shares they can shares are just like kind of like a made up number that they can just make up however they want and then just like price them according to how many shares they have so so like that that price doesn't really matter 
But the thing is, when the, when the whole market goes down, that means stocks are relatively on sale, you could say. So if you're buying now, let's say you lost 50% of your money, but you save money all the time because you live less than, you live on less than you make, and you decide to take some of that money and put it into the stock market, you can now buy twice as many stocks as you could before, right? Because the market is 50% off. So if you invest you know, $100 every month and you can only buy one share of the total stock market index fund every month, and then the market drops 50%, now you can buy two shares, which means that when the market recovers, and this is something JL Collins, Collins also says, is the market always recovers over time. That when the market recovers, you're gonna have twice as many stocks from when you were buying those stocks on sale, right? So you should always, always relentlessly be putting money into the market on a consistent basis because you are going to take advantage of all of the times that the market dips. And as the market goes up, all of your money is growing and expanding as it is. And that's one of the greatest things about index funds is that you don't have to care which companies do better than other companies. You don't have to try and figure that out. People dedicate their lives to trying to figure this stuff out. And the vast, vast majority of them do not beat the index. They do not beat the market over time. It's, you know, you know, maybe 10% of them will beat the market this year, but of those 10% next year, maybe only 10% of those left will beat the market. And over a 10, 15 year period, forget it. Like, forget it. They're not, they don't do it. And like, if, if they could do it reliably, and charge, you know, next to no fees, which is index funds charge basically no fees. If they could do that reliably, so many more people would have way more money than everyone else in the world, like you'd because be, it would be replicable. But the thing is, it's just not. Right. Exactly. And what does Warren Buffett say? In his shareholders letter, he says, look, we are leaving, I am leaving all of my estate to, I'm leaving, you know, 10% to my children and then 90% of my estate is going to go into, um, the S&P 500 Vanguard Index Fund because he knows that what he does the way that you know the 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 genie or genius that Warren Buffett is he knows that that's not replicable he knows that you know there there are only so many LeBron James there are only so many Kobe Bryant's right there's only so many of basically everyone who's phenomenal at what they do sure someone will probably come along and be better than Warren Buffett and have more money than Warren Buffett if they live as long as Warren Buffett cuz you know Half the money he's made is just because of the fact that he's so old, he's still around to have his money. But like, maybe someone will do it. But out of the 8 billion people in this world, like, it's not going to be me. That's for sure. So like, I'm not even going to try to play that game. I would rather just put as much money as I can into index funds and kind of follow this very simple path and know that 40 years from now, 50 years, 60 years from now, dude, we're, we're, there's just going to be so much more money there like than we could have ever imagined. It's going to be like 12, 15 X of what you have today. That's awesome. So how, if, if like, if it's such a sure win, like if it's such a no brainer, like everyone should win at this then how come everyone doesn't win in it? <laughs> like, you know, how come, how come everyone isn't in the stock market right now today? And how come so many people talk about like, for example, I met someone when I was living in San Diego who lost everything like everything like they had a nice house they had like a family they were ready to retire and everything and like the 2008 stock market crash and housing market crash wiped them out left them like penniless living like this older couple living in like a tiny rented apartment and that's like all they had to themselves like 
all they sold all their furniture they sold their home like they lost everything how does how does someone end up like that if this is such a no-brainer win yeah so there are i would say probably two huge reasons why people lose everything or lose just mostly everything so warren buffett actually has a, a really awesome quote that i want to read here um, and he's referring to the dow which is the the dow jones industrial average which um if we want we can go into the history of that but basically it's just 30 companies 30 large companies in the united states and Some it just tracks their share 500 price. but just 30 instead of 500 yeah, well, and, and the Dow Jones is actually a little bit different in that it's based on the sh average share price of these 30 companies. So it doesn't take into con into consideration the actual capitalization of the entire company. And capitalization, just for those of you listening, it's um, the number of stocks or the number of shares that a company has outstanding or just, you know, the number of shares that a company has made times the amount that each of those shares is selling for, right? So you know, if you have 100 shares and they're all worth $1, your market capitalization is $100. Um, and so the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average actually only tracks 30 companies, but they use the, the number that they use isn't based on the capitalization of these companies. It's based on just the share price. Mm. And, you know, we talked about how one company can have 4 million shares and another can have 1 billion shares. And that's totally arbitrary. So the, the Dow Jones so, is, is kind of an imperfect, not great tracker of the market. Okay, so like a $100 company that had two shares of $50 would be in the Dow Jones over uh, like a $200 company that had 100 shares kind of thing. Um, yes and no. Like in, in, in concept, yes. Like that, you know, how many shares they have and the price of their shares is dependent. For example, Berkshire Hathaway, their class A shares are somewhere in the neighborhood of $500,000 a share. Like... They're not in the Dow Jones Industrial Average because having one company whose single share price is five hundred thousand dollars is going to shoot the average up so much it's not even like it's not even worth tracking. So you know Berkshire Hathaway, their A shares are never going to be inside of the Dow Jones. But uh, that's that, yeah, that, and that's kind of a side tangent. We don't necessarily need to go into that. But the Dow Jones does in essence track the trend of the market, though perhaps a little bit less perfectly than you know an S and P five hundred or something. So anyway. Warren Buffett says the Dow started the last century at 66 and ended at 11,400. How could you lose money during a period like that? A lot of people did because they tried to dance in and out of the market. So that's kind of the crazy thing. So there's this concept that, or this, this, this prejudice, not prejudice, like, but there's just this idea that when people think of the stock market, they think of gambling. Because, you know, when you go on your phone, you open your stocks app, if you have that download, or if you pop on your computer, Yahoo Finance, whatever, like all you see is prices. You just see a little green thing saying the price has gone up or a little red thing saying the price has gone down. And that's it, right? You know, you know maybe if you're a little more sophisticated, you'll, you'll read about their PE ratios, their CAPE ratios, and a bunch of other stuff. But for the most part, you just see prices. And, and so when you, when people think about the stock market they think they're literally gambling like i'm gonna put some money in you know pull the lever watch some things spin and hope that you know this thing shoots out a whole bunch of um tokens you know or <laughs> you know chuck e cheese little tokens or what you know i just hope it's gonna spit out more money than i put in it but you know you know I'm, yeah, we'll see 
you know, and lots of people love gambling. So, you know, there's plenty of room for people to do some gambling inside of the stock market. And if you look at the stock market as a slot machine, then that's all it's going to be to you, right? You're going to put in money just kind of into whatever companies you see, whatever you think is a good idea. You have no idea what's going on. You don't understand how, how stocks work in general, and you're going to pull the lever and maybe you make some money, maybe you don't. But there are a lot of people who aren't invested at all in the stock market because this is what they think the stock market is, right? But what we forget is that the stock market is just a bunch of companies, right? These companies who have people inside of them who work every dang day trying to make their lives a little bit better at their job, trying to make their jobs a little bit better, trying to make their managers a little bit happier and the managers trying to get, you know, the VPs and the execs and the, the C-suite office, like they want to make everything better. They want to produce better sodas, better candies, better toys, better cars, better houses better everything like everyone is just trying to make life better and solve problems on a consistent basis and those are what the companies inside of the stock markets do and so when you put money into the stock market and you let it sit there for a long time you're putting money into companies and you are hoping that they do better over time that they get better that the people inside of them are constantly working working relentlessly to make things better for everybody that you know, they're connected to that's, you know, that is what makes the stock market so cool. But if people look at it as gambling and don't understand what they're doing and like, just pick random stocks just to see what happens or because, you know, the guy, your neighbor next door, the dude in the cubicle next to you, your, your buddy in school is like, Hey, yo, I just heard about this stock. You should really get in on it. You know, it's going to be great. Like that is basically akin to gambling. Now what, what uh, Warren Buffett's saying here about people dancing in and out is kind of a separate issue. And that is that people don't have what it takes to watch their money fall, right? People don't have what it takes to toughen up and to like sit out and wait for things to get better. Because, you know, the psychology studies have been done that, you know, if you find $5, it's not nearly as a positive emotion to you as losing $5 as a negative emotion to you right you'd have to make i believe it's it's a 4x so i think you would have to earn 20 bucks or find 20 dollars serendipitously in order to offset a five dollar loss that's kind of like the way it works out too so right we we struggle so much with watching the stock market crash and that's like the hugest problem and jail collins talks about this over and over and over again here's the thing right if you have 10 shares of a company and the company's price cuts down in half how many shares of the company do you still have if 10 you still have all 10 right and so when the price goes back up now your your money's still back at the number it was before and then as that money grows it keeps going the thing is as the stock market goes up and down the number of shares that you have in these things doesn't change so if the stock market dips 50 percent a hundred you know 99 percent as long as you don't sell at the bottom then when the market starts to recover and the market always recovers, the market always goes up over time. When that money recovers, you're going to be just fine. You're going to have all your money. But if but. the stock market drops 50% and you're like, dude, I can't, I can't watch the numbers on this screen. Keep going down. Like, I, I don't, I don't think I can stick it out. I should just cut my losses now. Like that is when you lose all of your money. Yeah, that I is think. when you've lost half your stocks. Yeah, and I think it's it's easy to think about it this way, but when you've got skin in the game, it's a whole different ball game, right? Especially for being how young I am, like I have a substantial amount of money in the stock market, 
And so right now, like it hurts, right? To see the stock market down 17, 18% and to see like that much money gone is, it's kind of painful. But at the same time for me, it's not like necessary. Whereas if you put yourself in the shoes of yourself in 50 years, 50, like 40 or 50 years, when you have like several million dollars in the stock market, let's say you have $10 million and it drops 50, 50% in like a year or in two year span, you literally just lost $5 million, right? And now if you're hitting, if you've already lost $5 million and someone, all the smart people out there, all the news, all the sport, like all like the stock pickers, all of the mutual fund, like all the smart people who do stocks for a living are telling you it's gonna keep dropping. Another, another 20%, another 25%, another 33%, whatever. And you're like, wow, I'm, I'm literally about to go from $10 million all the way down to two, one, less. Like, I'm losing everything. That's when it gets tough, especially when you're like 50, 60 years old and it's like, this is my livelihood. This is, this is, this is how I'm supposed to support myself for the rest of my life and I'm watching it slip from my fingers like day by day by day. That's when it gets really difficult to not press sell and to save and salvage whatever you have left but it's the worst thing you could possibly do. Like literally the worst thing you could possibly do because you're locking in those losses. Whereas if you hold on to that and you stick out that, however long it is, one, two, three, four, five years of that depression, it will come back, right? And that's, that's the moral of the story is if you can just convince yourself to stick it out and you can set yourself up in a financial place where you don't have to pull that money out, because of like the situation that you're in, like if you have an emergency fund or if you have enough put in other places or if you live frugally enough that you don't have to pull out that money, then it will come back and you'll make that money back and you'll be okay. But when it's down and people are saying it's gonna keep going down, that's when it's scary, you know? And when it's like your life, like everything you've worked for for 40 years is just like gone. <laughs> that's when it's hard, I feel like. Yeah, and obviously neither of us have been around for 40 years, so we you know, we don't know what that what that looks like. But we do have all of this historical data. We do have people who have lived through so many huge financial crises and that understand that this thing happens all the time, right? Like we can we can lean on these guys and say, you know, and listen to the advice that they have to give and say, "Oh, this is actually going like this is how the numbers work this is how the performance of the stock market over time actually looks like if you pull up a graph so all of you guys are obviously going to go and look at uh, jail Collins stock series and on one of the uh, parts let's see i think it's on uh, i think he has he's got it on part one part two maybe he's got some some pictures of of the graphs of the market and it's just a relentless charge up right? There are lots of dips down. It's like a sharp graph with lots of, you know, points on it because the stock market goes up and down all the time, but there are constantly going to be crises. Every few years, there's going to be crises. Every few years, there's few, few years, there's going to be a recession. Every few years, there's going to be some enormous, like one day, just plunge in the market. And every, you know, not just few, but like every, you know, several Decade. decades, you could say there's going to be a great depression and there are going to be huge problems right it always happens and it always will 
And if you can, if we can learn that and if we can internalize that, then when it does happen, it's not going to matter that much. It matters because you, you know, you've got to make sure that you've set some guardrails up so that you don't pull out at the worst possible time that would throw away all of your hard earned savings, all of this money that you have been working and saving to put into the market. You can screw it all up if you sell at the bottom, right? And like, so we can talk about those guardrails, guardrails later, like sequence of return risk and, and how to, to put, you know, bonds into your portfolio and how to have certain cash reserves on hand, kind of like you were saying, Russell, and we'll definitely get to that because I know JL Collins writes about this in the stock series as well. And there's, there's a whole lot more that we can talk about with that, um, to setting yourself up for success for when this does happen. But the biggest takeaway that I got from this four, these first four articles that JL Collins writes is that. The market always goes up, always, 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 and that there is always going to be a big, fat, ugly market crash, right? When the market crashed, like, you know, it started tanking these last few days, like, I straight up just didn't know until I was listening to some podcasts and everyone's talking about how the stock market's gone down. And I was like, dude, I don't even know how much is in my retirement accounts right now because I'm not touching that money until I'm, you know, ancient, basically. So, like, why on earth does it matter to me how much money is or isn't in there, right? As long as the U.S. economy continues to move forward, we're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. And if the U.S. economy fails, like actually goes to zero, then money's not going to matter. Where we're trying to keep our money isn't going to matter. And there are going to be so many other things that do matter that we're not going to be worrying about the money that we no longer have, right? That's that's not going to be important whatsoever. So as long as you have faith in the United States economy as a whole, like, and around the world, because so many of these companies are global international companies, then just buy everything in the index, buy the indexes, just let them ride and just let the market go, right? You're going to watch the market go up and down and it doesn't matter. You can watch the market go up 2000%. You can watch it drop 99%, but then it'll go back up. And as long as you can hold out, you can toughen up, you can just, you know, grit your grit your teeth and, and you squeeze the, the handrails as hard as you can. You might, and we'll talk about things that, you know, we can do to, to safeguard ourselves against that. But as long as we can toughen up and hold out, everyone's going to be so much better off for it in the long run. And if you don't trust yourself to do that, then this like stock market investing might not be for you, you know? If you can't buy it and forget about it and just and if you don't have the right time horizon, if you're trying to like pull it out, if you're planning on pulling it out in the next year, two, three, five years, then it might not be for you. You know what I mean? And that's something to think about and possibly look for different avenues. But you need to be able to buy hold even through those downturns. So we hope you guys learned a little bit from this and we're looking forward to diving more into um, what JL Collins has to say about stock market because there's a lot, a lot more to go into it and to the diversification and a lot of the different things. So we're looking forward to it. Thank you everyone for coming on and we look forward to seeing you guys again next time. All right, catch you guys later. Thanks for coming to the Fire School today. We hope you learned something new and better yet, took action. Don't forget to share this episode with somebody who needs it and be sure to leave a five-star review. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at mailbag at thefyschool.com. And until next time, enjoy this super sweet saxophone outro. Class dismissed.